The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. So that song talks about, I am called by the King, and it makes me want to sing. Unless, of course, you never think about it and have forgotten. But the point is, they're singing to, to invite us to remember it and, and to, to hold it in front of us. I am called by the King. And how can I not sing of that? How can I not sing of His love forever if I am aware of His love forever? If it's right in front of you. That's the whole point of the song. And So, so thank you for that. And providentially... We're going to talk a little bit about that today. We read this, which I had already intended to read before that song, from the end of Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, of which we should sing forever if you know that. So pray with me now to a God who has loved us with an everlasting love remarkably. Let's pray. Father God, You have called us. And as we think about that, it should make us sing. So thank You for reminding us. And I pray now that You would remind us again in a way that that surpasses just a little blip on our memory of, oh yeah, something that I know, but that You would remind us in, in a deep and a profound way that You would drive it into us or awaken it from deep within us, whichever is appropriate, that You would move us. That we would see and then that we would live seeing that You have done something insane in the eyes of the world that has been tremendous love for us. It has changed our eternities. For some of us, it could change our eternities if we would embrace it. But for most of us here, Lord, it has changed us forever. And we just say, thank You. Thank You. And thank You for the fact that there is not a thing in the creation anywhere, not in the heights, not in the depths, not in the present, not in the future, nothing anywhere that can separate us from this love. You are a good God. And we come this morning now to a passage in 1 Corinthians that is a combination of, of an exhortation and a warning an urging of us to remember this, to hold this in front of us, and to live after it. And then an opening up of some other reality, some other piece of our existence here that that love at the cross has assured for us. 
So we turn and look at a couple of things today. And, and Father, I pray that You would, by the power of Your Spirit here in our midst, make Your Word live for us and, and run alive through this room and into our hearts and produce change from it. That's my prayer. You, a God who has called, would awaken us, Your people, to see that, to remember it, to grab a hold of it and to walk after it. You would do that this morning and that You would open our eyes to some other new aspect of what that means for us. The fact that You have saved us. You have made us Yours, owned us. Give grace to us, Your people, this morning. Make Your Word live. Spirit of God, I pray that You would move through us now and and where there are things that we need to set aside, whether they be distractions, things that are pulling on our minds, stuff related to yesterday or, or the rest of today or tomorrow, that You would help us to set those things aside where there is sin in us, that You would lead us to confess it even now. To turn away, to turn back to You, and to come to You as humble children and say, Teach. Spirit of God, teach. Would You do that this morning? Lord, in our midst, open Your Word and help us to understand it, to understand You in it. And I pray this in Christ's name for the good of His church. Amen. So we've been working through the opening three chapters of the book of 1 Corinthians. We've followed along with the Apostle Paul as he addresses, fundamentally, as addressing an, an issue that was in the church in Corinth and is an issue in our church and in all churches, the issue of division takes on all different formats, but one significant way that it was expressing itself there, which he's touched on repeatedly and we'll come back to again this morning, is is factionalism of people dividing off and following certain leaders or, or certain teachers opposed to other teachers and leaders, accepting some and discarding others. And the strife and the, the jealousy that that produced. It's a, it's a real-life problem, one that they faced. We face it also. And as I say that, as I say that we face it also, please understand something. You face this. We, as a group, we face this. We shouldn't, but we do. It's, it's in us. This, this idea of, of division and faction is, is in us. It's in our homes. It's in our marriages often. It's in our church body. And in saying that, I'm not saying that we... Salt Lake AV Free are unique. Or that you or, or me, that we are unique. Wherever you gather people together, this happens. Because we human beings, we people, Christians though we are, we are prone to forget the gospel and kind of set it aside and move on away from it. And when we do that, what we have left to move to is ourselves and our own perspective and what the world sells to us is right and good. And when we embrace that, sure enough, strife will follow. Conflict. Because I embrace some vision of that and you have a different one. And we will fight. That happens. And so, well, I think that in some ways we, this church, we have had a reputation in the past. Maybe not a good reputation along these lines. I'm not saying that we are uniquely troubled and about to fall apart at the seams. But don't hear me say that and then say, oh good, I can check out. No, because you do face this. This is real. It is in our lives. And Paul, for a couple of chapters now, has been, through the work of God, helping us to address this by reminding us of the Gospel, which is the key to solving this problem. To turn back to God and what He has done for us in Christ. He's been unpacking that for several chapters now. 
And last week, in chapter 3, verses 5 to 17, he added in yet another argument. Because when we are dividing in this particular case, favoring one minister over another, Paul added in last week that we're, we're actually misunderstanding what ministers are. That in God's eyes, a minister is just a servant. Not worthy of our adoration, not worthy of being followed, but only God who gives the growth. He is the one who should draw our attention. Not the particular ministers. And we need to remember that. Keep that in mind for how we view ministers and ministers, because we all are ministers. Keep that in mind and be careful that we build up God's church and not tear it down. That was the sober warning that, that ended last week's passage, verses 16 and 17. And with that warning, that's where Paul picks up today in verse 18 and following. And he uses this as a bridge into what is a summary section. He's summarizing this morning much of what he has already said. He's pulling in things. And, and you remember, if you're just reading this straight through, this only takes you a couple of minutes to get to the end of chapter 3. It's taken us a few months, but it takes them just a couple of minutes if you read it from the very beginning. So he's got all this stuff on his mind, and he's kind of pulling it together in a summary. Expanding then into another realm. Summary, then it goes somewhere else. Which is connected, but it might seem like we've got two things kind of pushing in different directions this morning. I, I, try, I try to connect them. But the second thing, I think is cool. As I've thought about, particularly the second half of what we're going to look at today, there's some, some things that are challenging there, but should, I, I pray... That God uses them to produce in you, in your life, a degree of freedom and, and release that is unique and, and perhaps that you haven't consistently known. It's related to what the first part's about, but it might seem a little different too. So we'll see when we get there. That's where we're going. Let me read 1 Corinthians 3, verses 18 through 23, through the end of the chapter. Paul says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's and Christ is God's. 1 Corinthians 3. As I said, the passage has two halves, both of which are introduced with the phrase, let no one. And the first half is the summary including a warning, and then the second half then sort of wraps it up and goes somewhere else. It's a bit like he's saying, you think about this, and, and don't forget this, and, and this over here is important too, and so therefore, do this. And also, it's kind of the, the structure of the passage. And if I try to pull it together into a single sentence to, to kind of give you a, something to hang your hat on here this morning, here's how I would summarize the passage in a sentence calls us to embrace God's folly of the cross and find that in it 
He has made you the beneficiary of all things. A beneficiary. Like, like on a life insurance policy or something. It could have used the word heir, like the one in, in, a, in a will, but I've used the word beneficiary because in English we hear the word benefit. We hear the connection there. And the idea of benefit is on the table here this morning. There's something here that will be of benefit to you if we can get our minds around it. So he calls us to embrace God's folly of the cross and find that in it He has made you the beneficiary of everything. All things. That's where I'm going. I'm going to just break that in half and with each half make a summary point. So here's my, my first summary observation. The text exhorts us to embrace God's folly of the cross to become wise, not the folly of the world. It's pushing us towards God's folly of the cross. Grab a hold of that, embrace that, not the folly of the world. Become a person who is, more than just professes to be, actually is cross-centered in your living, in your thinking, in your wanting. Embrace that. Don't deceive yourselves. Beginning of verse 18. This actually matters. Realize that he's talking to Christians here. He's talking to a church. It's it's who he's writing to. Telling them, telling us not to deceive ourselves because Christians, whether whether they live in Corinth or in Salt Lake, we are we, we constantly we are prone to live life with a separation, with a gap between what we believe and what we believe. And I'm not trying to be cute there. Do you remember the, the man who came to Jesus and said, I believe, help my unbelief? He believed Jesus. That's why he's talking to Jesus about healing his son. He's believing. But then he said, if you can. And he betrayed himself with the if. In that same heart, there's belief and unbelief. Jesus, if you can. And that heart is ours. That's where we live. If you're a Christian, then you actually have trusted Christ. You actually have submitted to Him. You actually have cast yourself upon Him. Or to use the language of these chapters and these verses, this argument, you are wise. You are mature. You have the mind of Christ. You have the Spirit of God living in you. True of every Christian. But the whole point of chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, is that Christians, we often live beneath ourselves. We are mature and we live as infants. We have the mind of Christ and we live thinking and valuing and wanting and pursuing things just like mere human beings. We are wise, we pursue the, the folly of the world. We have the Spirit, but we live according to the flesh. That gap is a constant in us. Now, the way to say it would be that we've grasped the cross. If you're a Christian, you understand the cross. You know what happened there. You know what it is. And and you believe it. And you've pulled it near to you. You know who Jesus is and you've trusted Him. However, instead of living with that at the center of our hearts and, and the controlling vision before our eyes so often... 
Something else has come to the center. And something else controls what we think about and want and pursue. Other values from the world. What the world around us says, this is why, this is what you should pursue. Not the wisdom of God, but the wisdom of the world. And don't be deceived by that. Brothers and sisters, it matters. This is simple and straightforward. Let no one deceive himself. So often we we sit and think, I'm a Christian. I know the truth. So I'm okay. Uh, Yeah, maybe I should clean some stuff up and get a little bit tighter control. Yeah, okay, okay. but, But fundamentally I'm okay. Don't deceive yourself. To have this... And I'm talking, I'm not talking about false belief. I'm talking to Christians who actually do believe. To have a living faith in Christ, but then to walk after something else matters. It affects you and everyone around you. It fails to honor God. It fails to build up His church. It fails to build you. It matters. Just like up in the previous verse, he, he's warning people, don't walk in a way that, that builds poorly or worse yet, destroys my people. Do not be deceived. You cannot walk after the pattern of the world with no consequences. It matters. God sees and He catches the wise in their craftiness. He knows what's going on. The two quotes from the Old Testament are getting at. This is a warning to us. Attempting to, to grab our attention, to summarize all that he said before and say, I'm not just spouting off here. You've heard me say this. It must be your life. Don't deceive yourselves. It matters. Rather than walking that way, you must. You must turn. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, which of course is the point, he's talking to people who think they're wise in this age, let him become a fool and embrace God's folly. That's how become wise. Which means in this context, embrace the cross. Embrace it. Become cross-centered. All this is building on what he said before. And so I'm not going to repeat everything that he said but I do need to point out a couple things, just at least in case you weren't here before. What he argues throughout chapter 1 is that God has done something that the world looks at and says, either that is insanity or that is insulting. You're telling me about a crucified Messiah? Some people take it as insulting and some people take it as lunacy. You're saying that God has acted to to benefit us with a crucified Messiah? What are you talking about? But if God has called to open your eyes, you see it for what it is, the wisdom and the power of God. God has sent to earth God the Son, the Messiah. Sent Him to earth to go to the cross. This whole thing is about Christ's cross. To go to the cross, to die, 
Why? You know this. You know this. Why? To remove off of individual people the wrath of God that rightly and justly sits on us as people. To remove it off of us and to place it on Christ Himself. That is how God has wisely and powerfully acted to affect your life and your eternity forever if you trust it. To embrace that, to embrace that great salvation is what must happen. And carefully, to embrace is more than just to trust Him to be saved. If you haven't trusted Him to be saved, please do. Please do. He offers to you in the cross hope for salvation, hope to be forgiven. But He's speaking to, and I'm speaking to those who have already done that. And in saying the word embrace, what I'm trying to get across here is the extra that Paul means to call Christians to. Which is the whole point, is it not? He's talking to Christians, calling them to more. Don't just in your mind agree, embrace it. Pull it near to you. Live after it. This is a summary section. And so I want, to, I want to take a moment to, in a summary way, make an appeal to you. So I just want to talk to you for just a minute. Christian, please, please consider this and run it through your life. If you're a Christian, I, I know that you agree with this. I'm not talking about that. What we're talking about here is some embracing of Christ and His cross that is so, a phrase we use, sold out, that people would look at you and say, that's insane. What a waste. Why would you live according to those values? Why would you think about that? Come on, look at, look at this, look at life, look what's available to you here. So maybe I can use the word sold out and that connects with you, I don't know. I'm using the word embrace. Please, think through your life. Is the cross your standard? What I mean by that is we see at the, at the forefront of our faith is the leader and king who himself did not consider it beneath him to give up all of his own rights and as a suffering servant go to the cross and give up his life. He thought that was appropriate. And then he turned and said to all of us, you now take up your cross and follow me. Which means daily die to your own desires, your own perspectives, your own wants, as he's going to say later in the same book, the pursuit of your own advantage. Give it up and follow me. That's a standard of the cross. That's a, a cross in my mind that says my standard in life is that of self-denial, self-sacrifice, 
for the love of God and the love of others. Not just for the sake of doing it, but for the love of God and for the love of others. Is that your standard? Does it mark how you live? I plead with you, think it through. And secondly, more than just a standard, is the cross the empowering assurance that enables you to walk in that standard? What I mean by that is do you use the cross front and center as the evidence that God is for you? That God sustains you. That every morning, as Psalm 90 says, that God this morning satisfies your heart and makes you glad. And that then enables you to walk the standard of the cross. It enables you, it empowers you because you can say, my life is covered, I'm protected, I'm taken care of. Look at the cross, proves it. God has me. God upholds me. God loves me. God meets my needs. I can give it up to others. Does the cross function as your standard and as your enabling empowerment? The assurance that God is for you. I plead with you, think it through. There is a a danger here, kind of a... A sociological danger that as I talk a lot about the cross and a lot about things you know, and as I use a phrase that maybe once was original, preach the gospel to yourself, that now it becomes rote. And and the danger is that this then will all become something that we say, oh yeah, yeah, I know, I know about that. And, and we move it off to the side and kind of forget about it. And here in this summary section, Paul's kind of calling us back to this, and so I want to call us back to this. Please do not let that happen. It matters. Not that you know you should preach the gospel to yourself, but that you actually do it. Not that you know that the cross should be more than just theology, I believe, but that it actually is more than just theology that you believe. That it is so near the surface that it affects how you think and act. It must be, brothers and sisters, it must be. It must be the conversation between us at lunch after church today. When your gospel community gathers and little things here and there, whether it's a a great big full meeting on a Sunday afternoon or whether there's a few of you in a Bible study on on a Thursday morning. This must be between us, in front of us, always. And if it isn't, certainly something will replace it. The values and perspectives of the world. I'm not telling you anything new. I'm just pleading with you. Think it through. Examine your life. Talk it through with somebody else. Is the cross our standard? And is the cross our enabling empowerment? Is it on our conversation? Or is worldly wisdom what I chase after and follow and want?
And to hunt that down, you could ask yourself a question. Look for this. Where are you seeking your own advantage? You can ask yourself, where am I seeking my own advantage? Because right at that place, that's the place where self has come to the fore and the crosses fall into the background. True wisdom comes in embracing God's cross. A change of heart, a change of perspective, a change of loves. It matters. Make this a point of conversation between you, your spouse, your parents, your kids, somebody else. We must be a cross-centered people. If we're going to be a church that is what God means us to be, the cross has to be at the center of what we are about. What we think about, what we talk about. Please, I plead with you. This is the wisdom of God. That's the summary. He urges us not to deceive ourselves. And then he brings that around the very beginning of 21. So let no one boast in men. Kind of his main issue. This should undercut this division. This boasting of one guy versus another. This lifting up of my guy and throwing away of yours. There should be a resolution to this if we can think through and become cross-centered people. So don't boast in men. And then he moves to his second point. Let me express that like this. In Christ, God has made you the beneficiary of all things. In Christ, God has made you the beneficiary of all things. I want to start at the end in verse 23. And notice, I'm going to call this a nesting here. Look, look at my hands if you can here. That there's, there's a nesting. Starting at the back and, and working forward. Christ is God's. You have God who possesses within His hands Christ. Now, as a real brief aside, don't press this verse to try to understand the workings of the, of the Trinity too far because it's not exhaustive. It just is saying one little thing here. Some have done this, have taken this verse and, and have kind of made Jesus to be like half God or less than God. He's talking about God the Father and His working in the world and God the Father working in the world uses God the Son. When Jesus walked the earth, He said, I do nothing but what my Father tells me to do. Perfectly submissive to Him. So back to the nest. God the Father, Christ who belongs to God, is possessed by God for God's purposes. Us, within Christ's hands, you are Christ's. Christ is God's. At the cross, He has claimed us and we, we are possessed by Him for His purposes. Remember the word redeemed? He's bought us out of the slave market. He owns us. We live now according to His purposes. Father, Son, people, what's in our hands? The end of 21 and 22. All things. Everything. We hold in our hands all things. 
within Christ, within God the Father, of course. But He's pressing on us. All things are, our, are ours. What does that mean? Well, one part of it's easy, and the, other, the easy part will help us understand the complicated part. Look at the beginning of verse 21. So there, there's the, the main point there. So let no one boast in men. For, because, why shouldn't you boast in one guy over another? Because all things are yours. Paul, Apollos, Cephas, they're all yours. Don't say, this is my guy and get rid of them. God's given all of them to you. Think back to last week. For whom do Paul and Apollos and Cephas and whatnot work? For whom do they work? God. They're servants of God. And God, through Christ, into our world, has deployed them as ministers, as servants then to us, to build the church. God has given all of those guys, all of them to us for our blessing and for our growth. So don't boast about one against the other, throwing them out. They're all yours. That's the point at the beginning of the verse. We are beneficiaries of every single one of those teachers. Which is a significant point for us. We today, we are, we are no less prone to paint in, in big, broad strokes in the theological canvas than they were back then. We also are prone to have two camps. The good camp and the bad camp. And this guy, this teacher... This denomination that I like, I put them in the good camp. And these other ones, I put them in the bad camp. Don't listen to them. Disparage them. Well, assuming that we aren't dealing with false teachers, and that is a reality we need to be aware of, but assuming that, it just isn't so easy to make two camps. To throw out all these and embrace all of these because all of them are ours. God has given to us all of them. And with the Bible as our authority, we need to be open to God teaching us through different means. We need to be aware that He may teach us through otherwise unexpected sources, through John Calvin and John Wesley. read a great book that had a chapter in it entitled, What Can We Learn from John Wesley? And as the title might imply, not everything. Not everything. With the Bible as our authority, if we follow John Wesley down some of his teaching, we're going to find that he made some significant errors about some really important stuff. But with the Bible as our authority, we also find that even sometimes right connected to some of his most significant errors, there were some gems. That sometimes people like me who are inclined to set John Wesley aside need to hear. What can we learn from John Wesley? One thing we can learn from him is that he was absolutely convinced and passionate and vocal about the love of God for people. I think it led him into some errors. But there was something really right about it too. Perhaps an unexpected source for some of us. Could have, of course, said the same thing about John Calvin for some of us. The point being, 
We have a heritage given to us by God. And the Bible is our authority because not everybody, not everybody knows everything and not everybody is equally valuable. But God has given to His church people who can teach us things. And as one man put it, we need to get better at eating the meat and leaving the bones. And recognize there may be meat in unexpected places. God has given to us all things. Paul, Apollos, Cephas, that's clear enough. But the most puzzling part of these verses, and in my estimation the most profound, coming up here, the second half of verse 22. All things, whether Paul, Apollos, Cephas, what does it mean when he says, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future? All are yours. What does that last part of verse 22 mean? It means the same thing the first part of verse 22 means. Follow this. And, and please, I understand here, you're going to have to think. I hope that is not a problem. But, but you're going to have to think about this. But if you do, I, I think that there is some reward here. And as I've thought about it this week, there is some challenge here to me and, and there's just been some some sense of, of relief and I feel like, oh, you know, if I could get that a little more clearly and a little more consistently, there would be even greater relief and release. So think with me here. What does he mean with these words? It's a little complicated, but I think it's awesome. Five words here. Wor- world, life, death, present, future. Think about them. They encompass our existence. They include our life, what we are. That's being described here. One writer aptly called these words the tyrannies of human life. Because they are the things that we face and cannot control. The reality we can't escape but are forced to face and deal with. You can't get away from the world. You can only live in it and respond to it. Your life, your death, those are realities. can't get away from it. can't avoid it. But you're constantly faced with the need to consider what's happening to me. What, what's, what's my life like right now? Where's my life going? And we live constantly aware that just over there somewhere... Just beyond this horizon, just around the corner, awaits my death. We all know that, don't we? And even sometimes the work of trying to deny that and hold it out, that itself is a tyranny that keeps us working constantly, trying to forget. We face a present. Things happen right now. And we know that they will have an impact on the future in all kinds of different ways. Where I go to school now affects the future. What kind of job I do, what kind of job I have, who I marry, we know it affects, but I don't exactly know how. And so I'm kind of concerned about that, and I'm concerned about what I'm going to do right now, so I do the best I can to try to look at these. And if I could know everything, which I can't, I might make a good decision, but maybe I'm making a foolish decision. What do I know? So you do the best you can. 
You try to cover as many bases as you can. You eat right. You exercise. You plan for retirement. And then you find yourself going to the supermarket one morning to pick up some milk and some guy shows up with a gun and changes everything. That's the tyranny of it all. You can't control it. It controls you. Every moment. Every moment of this world, this life, this death, this present and this future. They lord over us. And we are simply scrapping. Trying to keep our head above water. Trying to get ahead. We run ourselves ragged as we struggle against this existence. And sometimes great tragedies like mass shootings or simple troubles like traffic make this really clear to us. We are not in charge. We are not in charge. We're not in charge of anything. Think of the thing you most have control over and pause for a second to realize you don't. Not a bit. It's just happening out there. We worry and fear what may come. And then weep when it does. Or maybe rejoice when it does. If it was good. But you know, if you think about it for a minute, that the other shoe will drop, right? Because we live in a sin-cursed world. And our bodies are winding down. You're 20 minutes closer to your death than you were 20 minutes ago. Right? Right? And you know that. But there is good news. What Paul is saying is that you, Christian, sitting in God's hands, in Christ's hands, have been given all of this. As a gift from God, not as a tyrannical ruler, not to induce fear in you, not to be struggled against and mastered by you. You can't. But they have been mastered by Him. He is Lord over all of that. He is Lord over the world. He is Lord over your life. He is Lord over your death, over the right now and tomorrow. He reigns. God the Sovereign Father has submitted into the hands of the Son the right to be King. And He then places those things in your hands, His children. Not saying they're all good. There is much in the world that is evil. That is crystal clear. But God always reigns over all of it. And while not sinning in it, His control over life assures that all sin and everything else that comes to you comes to you through His hands and is meant for your good. Everything you meet then is yours towards that end. Your good. This world. This life. Whatever you meet. When, it, when, it, when the sun shines, 
when the sun shines, it's for your good to be enjoyed, to give thanks over it, to experience some of the, the warm, sun-shining, smiling face of God and to get a foretaste of a coming world in which there will be no sin and no sorrow and no tears. And when it rains or when it storms, then count it all joy, brothers and sisters. And you experience various trials because they produce steadfastness in you and they grow you. And even if now it is necessary, says First Peter, it is necessary to be grieved by various trials. Know this, they are producing in you a resolute faith and a taste of and an appreciation of a good God who is your joy. All things, all things conquered by Him and therefore given to us under His dominion for our good, even death. Death is there. Even death. He brings your death when He wills it. For your good. Christian, think about that. Death delivers you into His presence where there is fullness of joy. Pleasure forevermore at His right hand. As the song says, it is not death to die. To leave this mortal home and go into His presence forever and ever. It's a gift. It's yours. It'll come when He brings it. Wisely and graciously brings it. I know, this is crazy talk. This is folly. Or is it wisdom? Which is it? If you would see yourself with the cross front and center and realize that the sovereign God is executing all of His purposes through His Son and delivering all things to you, and you would realize that all of God's purposes for me are all good, And you think, there is some wisdom here. But the reason that it strikes us as folly is that we are, more than we realize, we are fundamentally at our core highly committed and deeply assuming that the good life here and now is the goal. And death puts an end to that. And so does all kinds of other tragedy. How can that be good? Because we've assumed the wrong goal. The good life here and now is not the ultimate goal. Intimacy with God is. And He knows best what brings that. It is as if He says to you, you worried that this would come and you planned against it and it still came. And I was there. And in your tears you turned to Me burdened and heavy laden, downcast and crushed, and you found rest for your soul from a lover who doesn't quit, the one for whom you were made. You found that there. You'd heard of it and you knew of it and you agreed to it, but you actually found it right there in the midst of the deepest sorrows. You found it there, didn't you? Then it was good of me to give it to you. Because that's what your soul was made for.
What a blessing it was that I gave that thing to you along with all the other things in your life today and tomorrow and in the future. All of it gifts from me to you for your good. I know this is crazy talk. But it's the wisdom of God. What you most need, Christian, what you most need, what you were made for, and what will fill your heart is intimacy with God. And it just cannot come while we are grabbed, hold tight of the world. And so graciously He pries our fingers off of it, sometimes through tragedies. I realize it is very easy for me to talk about this in this sort of a setting. This isn't a funeral. I realize that. And I, and I realize that some of you might be sitting here right now with front and center as you're trying to struggle to have the cross in your sight. There is a tragedy pressing in. I realize that. And if I have been inexact or hurtful in some way, I'm sorry. But we have to talk about this in, in some way, corporately as a body. We have to talk about it before the funeral, so to speak. Before the tragedy, so that we have a proper perspective on it. All these things, everything you encounter in all of your existence has been given by God to you. To grow you and develop you in Christ's likeness and in an experience of who He is for you in Christ. To find out that actually none of those things can separate me from the love of Christ. That list that I read at the beginning in Romans 8, very similar to this list. Adds a few other things in there, but similar words if you, can, if you heard them. And Paul concludes, I'm convinced none of this stuff can separate me from the love of Christ. Oh, the love of Christ is strong. You learn that in the midst of those things and you find Him still there holding on. So the piece that, as I was saying, as I've thought about this, it's kind of opened up a little bit of something, and if I could get it more, it would open up more, I think. I put a word on that, it's freedom. Can you imagine the freedom that would come in life if you actually saw all of the things coming to you in your life, even your coming death, right now and perhaps tomorrow, if you saw all of those things as God giving grace to you, and knew that tomorrow, whatever happens tomorrow, there will be grace tomorrow for me in that too. It should put a gap between you and worry. Between you and anxiety. Because the tyrannies of life, they no longer hold sway over you. Oh, you don't know any better what's going to happen you would realize that whatever happens is under God's hand for my good. Okay. I may weep, but I can also rejoice in it. Did not Paul say that? That we are sorrowing, but ever rejoicing? Not that sorrowing doesn't go, isn't real, but we sorrow while we rejoice. I think... I have just begun just a little bit this week to imagine the freedom that would come from viewing 
the things of my existence as God's gift to me for my good. Simple ways. And I risk trivializing the tragedies by saying this, but let me give you a, a simple example. A parenting situation that I faced this last week. Got a couple of kids who are kind of coming at me with various things that they want and they want them now and, and I'm trying to figure out, A, why they want that. It's not a convenient time for me. And frankly, I had other plans. I'm getting a little irritated. Mine, given to me by God for my good. What is it? To pry me away from love of self. And if I would just live with the cross at the center right now and see it as my standard to live sacrificially for them and to see it as the motivating hope, my life is secure. And I have one who loves me beyond all measure. I need not defend my own agenda. If I live with that at the center, I would see, oh, love of self fade away and love for Him and for them grow. So I, I did that. In a moment. And some freedom came from that. I didn't get to some stuff that I thought I was going to get to. And you know, who cares? It was okay. I'm still here. I know that sounds silly, but isn't that what's going on in our minds? If I don't get to this, then what's going to happen? Nothing. (laughs) Nothing's going to happen. I'm giving a trivial example. I know, obviously, there are other examples that are more serious. But, brothers and sisters, there should be a freedom here. If you get your mind around this, if you think and you get your mind around this, there should be a freedom here because none of these things that you will encounter lord over you anymore. They are given to you as servants, just like Apollos and and Paul and whatnot. They are given to you as servants for your good from the hand of a God who reigns over them. What if you viewed your life that way? I think it would produce freedom. It has begun to produce a little bit of freedom in me. There is nothing outside of His sovereign control. Nothing He has missed. All things are His. And they come to you in this world, in your life and in your death, right now and tomorrow, from His hand for your good to grow you. You are the beneficiary of all of them. All for your benefit. So embrace the cross and this profound wisdom. At the cross, He has won you to Himself and made this true of you. That it's all coming from Him to you for His good because you are His child. He has made that so at the cross when He redeemed you. Embrace that. Live with it at the front and center of your life. And find great benefit from God for you in all things. Let me pray. Father, would you make this so? Father, would you make it so? Would you help my brothers and sisters here, particularly those who deal with 
things that are are far more heart-threatening than a simple parenting issue. Will you help them to see your good and gracious hand in all of the events of their lives? Will you help them to rejoice even while in the midst of sorrow? By your Spirit present in them, will you give them a special taste of your comfort, a clear experience of your love, and give them rest? a freedom to walk with You in life and a desire to live with You at the center of their life. Make that true of all of us here, Lord, I pray. And for those here who don't know You, would You salt their tongues with this and make them thirsty? Would You draw men and women to You and draw them to the great freedom that is made available to Your people on the cross? Have Your way with the Spirit of God, I pray, for the glory of Christ and for the good and for the growth of us, Your people, Your church. I pray this. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.